Welcome, everyone. So glad you're here. You know, everybody has different forms of friendship. Uh, generally, your friends are nice to you. Michael is mean to me, but that's the type of friendship we have. Here, let me give you the most difficult thing to talk about, and uh, I'm going to go leave. See, I mean, look at that. That's amazing. So, um, you know, one of the, the, the general topic at first was why does God kill people? We begin to narrow it down to a topic is why does God ordain the killing of people? And so you have different things in texts that all of us can track with. Like you look at the book of Job and you say, why did God allow that to happen? That's a permissible situation. And then you have things, uh, permissed, uh, permission or allowed uh, I remember with my brother, I've spoken from this very podium and given you the story of my brother growing up to where, you know, my best friend got cancer when he was 16 and then died at 21. And, and I saw how he processed that. My life is a testimony of that. But for him, as he was going through that tremendous battle, I'll never forget, you know, just as he continually discipled me. When I die, I don't want you to be mad at God. He has a purpose in this. This is the story of my life. This is the reason by which I was born. It was tremendous. Many, many were transformed, and that's a great example of that. Even if you look at the book, I just challenge you to go back and read the book of James or uh, uh, Acts in chapter 12. You look at James and Peter. If you just very quickly touched on that, you would see that James had his head cut off as one of the disciples by Herod, yet what? Peter was set free. And we don't always understand those things, but the reality is there's things that are allowed. But then you get to a deeper element, which is uh, ordained. Which brings us to an element, when we step into society, you will hear, you will hear arguments like uh, God must be a moral monster. Uh, God must, if God was loving, why would he allow that? We hear these type of things. And I, as I begin to wrestle through the message I'm going to share with you, I had to process the same things that all of us process. And so I just want to give to you some of the things that God has given to me. Starting on the foundation of that would be a, a foundational question. If you were God, what would you do? What would you allow? What would you permit? I mean, that's fair, right? If you were God, what would you do? And so it starts with something that all of us are familiar with. And let's read this together because we grew up our entire life reading the Lord's Prayer. You find this in Matthew. Let's read it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. So when you see Jesus here with the disciples, he's saying, how should we pray? And I remember, I mean, prior to, to, to hanging out with Michael and talking to him about this text, probably for a, a minimum of the last six months when I get up in the morning and I get on my knees, for some reason, God has brought me to this exact spot, which is, God, what should I say to you today? And it starts with our Father who art in heaven. And, you know, and as you stop for moments and you digest a singular word, our Father, it's pretty beautiful, isn't it? You know, I recently became a grandparent. 
You know, when you have a, in, on you adult, if you've had a child, you'll understand this as well. Uh, but I became a grandparent. So my daughter had a little, fat, chubby, beautiful little girl. And recently I did something very bad, which is I woke her from her nap. Who knows what I'm talking about? So this was less than a week ago. And Tara, my beautiful wife here in the front, she, she had the, the beautiful little thing and put her to bed. And, and I was on a conference call. You know, your brain doesn't always work. And so as, as she's coming out, I'm going in and talking. And it just scared a little, little runt to death. And so needless to say, she comes out and for a solid 10 minutes, the baby is just crying and screaming her head off. And I'm still on my conference call. And Tara comes in and says, you have to get off the phone now. And your job is to go put her back to sleep. How many of you guys want to talk about? So she, she put me into discipline uh, under house arrest and sent me into the bedroom. It's almost like sending a kid to a candy store. Because when I went in there, I knelt over to the pack and play and I laid my hand on Gwen and I said, Gwendolyn. And she knew my voice. She stopped crying. And I got to pick her up. And I held her. And you know, I know I'm not supposed to do that. She's supposed to like cry herself to sleep or something. But the reality is, Father, you know what I'm talking about? The t- you know, there's like God who, and, I, and I, I know this is a little weird, but as I laid there, sat there on the, uh, the couch, and I held her in my arms for an hour and 15 minutes as she took her nap. Uh, you learn so much about God as you parent parent. And you know what I'm talking about? I I am not God. But I I thought about how God must love me because I was sitting there hugging and holding and surrounding and protecting and feeling her little diaphragm breathe. and, And I was so attentive and father, our father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That becomes a clash in our culture. It becomes a clash with our culture. Because in essence, in the first point of this, as we approach difficult topics, like why would God allow or ordain or permit suffering? Or even in this, a deeper topic, what God would God ordain the wiping out of a people group? So you have to step into biblical history to understand some of these things. But I always start with this thing. Our position makes a difference. See, our position mentally as we approach God changes things. Our viewpoint changes things. Is your life encompassed with this? I'm walking through life. God, I want you to be a part of my story. Or is it, God, I want to be a part of your story. You are God, I am not. That positional shift of mindset makes a difference. How do you approach God? You'll see my beautiful daughter, Kelsey, and this last Sunday she got married. Uh, Her husband, Andrew, just a wonderful, wonderful gift. And I know you don't know her, some of you do. But Kelsey, a beautiful bride, anybody who knows her actually today no, she's the most tender and sweet and loving and caring. If she was around your child, all the children want to adopt her as mama and go home with her. She's just precious. But that's not the entire story. If you, you see a picture of her as a, a little one, it's, uh, you know, my wife would say, this is an adorable picture of her. When I see that, I see the devil. 
is, I mean, she was maybe, my wife would know, three maybe at that age. That is a smile of wickedness. As a matter of fact, probably in this view right now, she has a, a younger brother that was 11 months later than her, and part of her joy was to torture him. I'm no exaggeration. I mean, when he's trying to crawl, it was a constant problem of her going over and sitting on him <laughs> with great joy to watch him scream. And he would scream, and we would... I remember... Kelsey, someday, he's going to be bigger than you. And I just remember that. She was mean. As a matter of fact, she had something inside of her that all of us had, have. I remember one of her favorite phrases as a young girl was, I don't want to. I don't want to. I remember when she was a flower girl herself going down the aisle. I have an older sister, Lindsay, and her second one, which is Kelsey. And, and you guys know how rehearsals are. Everything goes perfect. And you do the little flower petal shindig and everything's good. But then, you know, here is the real deal. The bride and the groom and all of that type of stuff. And the little flower, girl, the little flower uh, girls are supposed to go up and drop the petals. And I'm, mommy's up front. They're going to walk to mommy. And I'm supposed to be in the back. Come on, let's go. I'll never forget Lindsay and them starting. And then Kelsey turning around and look at me and goes, I don't want to. And takes the basket of flowers. <laughs> she doesn't just drop it. She throws it. I don't want to. Oh. We can learn so much from our kids. As a matter of fact, this is true. They want what they want. They want to do what? what they want to do. Their focus is on their life, not their family, not others, not others around them. They are the center of their universe. But in reality, isn't that really all of us? It really is in perspective to God. See, the Lord's Prayer, as I've literally I would say every day for a minimum of six months been before the Lord with that prayer. I think our prayer is often dis different. I wrote this down literally. I just said, okay, what, what is often in my being that is a prayer? Here's the prayer that my flesh would pray. Dear God, as a reminder, life is really all about me. Give me what I want today. In case you don't remember, I have things figured out. I determine what is right and what is wrong just and fair. Oh, also, I have a strong opinion about that, and I'm right. I am the center of life, and all things revolve around me. Thank you, God, for remembering this. As you process this next week, process your being positionally towards God, and you will find that our sinful nature is extremely powerful, and life is really all about me, not about him. Here's the second, so our position makes a difference. The second point being that our approach makes a difference. The lens by which we look creates clarity for what we see. See, when you're processing difficult questions around God and faith, our approach makes a difference. If we approach with doubt and skepticism, no argument will suffice. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? 
It's true. In relationships, we have situations that we're trying to talk common sense into someone, but they're positionally already here. And it doesn't matter what logic enters that storyline, it does not change it. I have a phrase inside of me that came out of me as a young man giving my life to Christ when I was 18, and and it was this, I don't care what the truth is, I just want to know it. In other words, I want to be in positionally humble before the Lord saying, teach me and show me your ways, not my ways. And so doubt and skepticism, no argument will suffice. If we approach God in a position of humility, I believe we can get a glimpse into the mind of God. Not necessarily know all his ways, but certainly begin to understand in some ways. If you start with distrust, it leads to a verdict of guilty. I would say if we start with a position of trust, it leads to objectivity. Our third point is a a posture that makes a difference. So stepping into an environment by which we say, not judgmental, God, how could you? Versus, would you help me to understand Why would you? It changes the environment of seeking and posture and humility. I would say the danger on the first part, the caution is what? Think of this for a moment. We put God on trial? Who are we to put God on trial? And what's even more crazy is that we judge God with a double standard. That's what's crazy. When you go through and tackle a difficult topic like, why would God allow good people to die? Or why would God allow? Why would he permit or why would he ordain? And we place him on trial. We say things like this. God, why did you wipe out those people? But then the very next moment, we will see wicked, unjust things and say, no, God, why didn't you wipe out those people? It's a double standard. He's evil either way. It's just not fair. In our American culture, we experience the same thing. As a matter of fact, our culture has certain benefits or rights to it that we don't quite grasp because we live in America. A simple topic like what? Innocent until proven guilty. That's a luxury. Did you guys know that? Because not in all countries... That is accurate. It is guilty until proven innocent. Yet, if we were in the court system and we were standing in front of the court, we'd say, no, I'm innocent until proven guilty. As a matter of fact, if you're an activist, you would be one that would be, if you saw the injustice in the world, right? And you wanted to march on the streets for those who are taken advantage of and abused, you would say, that is not just, that is not right. Yet, we turn towards God and place him in a position of guilt First, and he must choose, and we might, he must prove himself innocent. It's just interesting how we hold double standards. I don't think it's fair. One of the things that I, I do want is I want my faith to be real. One of the reasons I went to Moody, I gave my life to Christ, and I was stuck in a quandary of trying to understand the depths of God. You begin to read God's word, and you can't connect all the dots, and it takes a long, long time, many years of study to get it. And you never will. But the point being is to continue to deepen your understanding of God's word. 
So I ended up going to Moody, and one of the things that I wanted to strive for and have for, I don't even know how now, 35 years or 40 years, whatever it's been since I've known the Lord, is I want my faith to be reasonable. Would that be fair? I don't want to be nuts. I don't want to just say just because. I want to have some construct of logic and reason behind my faith. So I believe our reason makes a difference. The first being when you take a biblical, a biblical story like the story of Noah and you say, what did, God, what did God ordain or instruct that the people would be wiped out? And you put it into proper context. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that for a moment. It draws me to thoughts like this. What would you do? What would I do? If you really begin to dive into culture and situations and the wickedness of man, what would you do? As we know, God chose to wipe that people group and the people up until Noah off the face of the earth. That was his decision, but he knew so much more than we understood. Every intention Every thought was wicked continually. I would say, what would we do? How would we act? What would we prescribe if we were in that same position as God ourselves? Even when you go on to other stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, you guys get that deal? You know what I'm talking about. Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire comes down. When you go through and read the story, you begin to realize that Abraham, God says, hey, listen, I'm going to wipe these two cities from the face of the earth post-Noah, and Abraham begins to plead and say, no, really, no, can I, if I find 50, will you relent? All right, go try. And then what else? Now, that doesn't work out. Well, sorry, can I down my number a little bit? How about 10? No, that didn't work out. And ultimately, when you begin to dive into the story, you begin to see God sends a couple of angels who come uh, as men and visit Lot, his nephew. What's the rest of the story? The mob shows up outside of the house and says, give them to us. What is that all about? It's like, you know, give them to us. Uh, it wasn't a welcoming committee. You guys know that, right? The wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah was one that they would rape and kill and destroy. And if you began to really process it yourself, even if the injustice had happened to you, and or happened to one of your children, you would say, they deserve justice. Kill them, destroy them. Well, God saw that. Obviously, he, really, he did allow Lot and others to come out. But even in that story, yes, he was imposing justice. Or the seven tribes of Israel, what's that all about? Well, the seven, or not seven tribes, the seven tribes that Israel destroyed. So if you go through biblical, the understanding of the biblical timeline, you've got Adam and Eve. You've got what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. They end up uh, being enslaved in the nation of uh, Egypt. God raises up Moses and says, yo, let my people go. Probably didn't have the yo part, but we'll pretend. Yo, let my people go. They cross over the Red Sea. They wander for 40 years, and then they begin to enter into what? Common day Israel. And as they're standing on the banks of Jericho, or the, uh, uh, the Jericho's on the other side, the Jordan River, when they're standing on the banks of the Jordan River, and Jericho's over there, he begins to prescribe to them warnings. 
He says to them, destroy the people groups, these seven people groups, mightier and stronger than you. Destroy them completely. Now, well, that's interesting about that. Yet the people did not. That's what's interesting. He prescribed it. Yet when they went across as the army of the Lord, they did not obey fully. And so what you begin to see is the major problems that come along with it. See, I want my faith to be real. I want it to be reasonable. And part of that was the enacting of justice. The, what, he's saying, I see what is going on in these seven people groups. I see it. You may not see it, but I see it. And what did he see? Because as you look, you can understand the things that he said. In that period of time, there were three major gods in that part of the world which was Baal, Moloch, and Ashtoreth. And as I begin to study this new sum of it, you can see this picture, which is the god Moloch. And he was known as the Babylonian god of the underworld, by which to gain favor in the god's eyes, they would burn their children at the altar. And, and, and maybe, maybe, us with our Western point of view, what would we say? That is wrong. You, you should strike them dead. That's, that's not right, man, straight up. And as a matter of fact, many of you are going like, I can't, I can't believe they would do that. Do you know they do that now? See, at Village Church, my friend Peter uh, over in Africa, we've been, we was over there four years ago, and I talked to him just the other day. I talked to him a lot, but I talked to him the other day. When my wife and I and our children went over to Africa to kind of visit what's going on, he was exposed to child sacrifice by which literally today, and this is not new, this has happened throughout all of history, by which now you go out into the bush of Africa and you speak to a witch doctor and you say the name Jesus, I'm telling you right now, they don't even know the name. You can't believe this in our Western world, you can't. They don't even know the name Jesus. But they literally, for the same reasons they did it here, they sacrificed their children for, to gain a prosperity and favor from the gods. And I was restrained wisely by my wife and others to not show you literal pictures that I have seen. Literal pictures. It's where they chop the children up, literally. It's crazy. For prosperity, but it was no different there. It was no different then. And so God saw those things including human sacrifice and worship for, the pers the per for personal gain. Uh, Baal worshipers, very similar, usually the first point of the community in order to gain personal prosperity. In Leviticus, you can see this. See, they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan River. And what is God saying to them? You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. Because he, know, they, he knows they're getting ready to enter a culture that that is acceptable. A God that they've made out of their own hands and their own mind. And you'll see this in 2 Kings 23.10. I'm just giving you some verses to write down. Look it up. Here's another reason. I want my faith to be real. I would say one because of justice, I think that's fair and good and right. But I think another one is to prevent future child sacrifice. See, what's interesting is that the people of Israel did not obey fully. They let some people groups live. 
And as you go through biblical history and go through the kings and read the Old Testament and try to put it in context and in chronological order and do those type of things, you begin to realize there were kings like Ahaz, Ahaz and Manasseh who became very wicked and they brought spouses into the kingdom that still held those ancient beliefs and those ungodly practices, as you see, right, King Ahaz, it says in 2 Kings 16.3, he even burnt his sons as an offering. Isn't that interesting and awful? Because of the disobedience of the people of Israel not fully executing God's plan? In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 5 through 7, you can look that up. It, I, I don't have time to read it all, but it is interesting. It, it, part of that says, you sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. In 2 Chronicles 33, verse 6, when King Manasseh sacrifices his own two sons. It's appalling. See, part, I believe reasonably that God was giving the order to wipe these people groups from the face of the earth was not only because of justice, but to curve those wicked practices into the future. And clearly, it still happened. Here's a third reason, to prevent ongoing sexual perversion. As I studied about Asherah, which was the other God, it was a female God, and some of you, just like myself, until this week, I didn't even know this, that you'll see, like, go down and tear down the asterisk poles. Do you guys remember reading that? You'll read, go up to the high places and tear down the poles. And I never actually dug into what is that. But as I dug into it, even that I love archaeology and history, even now those poles exist. You can go and see the temples to Baal that still exist. And so what is that? It's a female God that they put on top of a mountain, believing that the sexual union of Baal and Asherah produced fertility, pagan worshipers engaged in immoral sex to entice the gods to join together and ensure a good harvest. God's incredible gift of sexuality within the context of marriage was perverted by the sexual acts between the priests and the Baal worshipers. And as you see, God saw all of it. And in the attempt to, per, to prevent that in the future, he was given an order to kill those people, groups. And you can see from this verse in the Bible in 1 Kings 14, 26, and there's other verses in 22, chapter 22, verse 46, there were even male shrine prostitutes in the land the people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nation the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And so what's going on? That wickedness continued. The attempt to prevent that was unsuccessful because they did not fully execute God's plan. You can see it in multiple places. Hosea in chapter four, verse 10 through 14, they sacrificed on the mountaintops and burnt offerings on the hills under oaks and in and, and shade. There, and it's interesting. Therefore, your daughters turned to prostitution. And so these, this wickedness continued in God's attempt to prevent it. The issue to me was not why did God kill certain people or groups or use the Israelites to do that? Here was a question. What if he did nothing? What if he did nothing? See, in... I'm 51 in my old age. It's taken me a long time to figure this one out. And that is it. That, that is this. To not to address injustice, to not stand up against ungodliness is in essence to endorse it. I've learned that. 
to remain silent really isn't an option because to remain silent is to endorse things that are ungodly and wrong. There's a proper way to approach things, but the reality is if God did nothing, he in essence indirectly would be approving it. Not good. To, here's the next thing I wrote down. To establish societal and reflective law. Societal law we're familiar with. Reflective law just came out of my brain. I'm not even sure if that's real. But the, the societal, you go from one society to the next. And you have different laws. We would take God's law and the things that we see in the Old Testament, maybe put him on trial and say that's not fair. We might choose to do that. But even when you die into more archaeology and history, there was a code called the Hammurabi Code, which was pre uh, pre-law, pre uh, the Judea, Judea law or the law of Moses. And so you see, he was a, uh, the, the Mesopotamian Empire king from 1894 to 1595 BC. And this law that was established in the circle court, graved on a rock. And these are the type of things that was the Hammurabi's law. Here, Hammurabi's reputation remains as a pioneer lawgiver who worked to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak and to see that justice is done to widows and orphans. What do you guys think of Hammurabi? You think he's a good dude, bad dude? Well, I don't know. That sounds pretty good. But then you go through the rest of the law. Here's his law. He says, oh, did you? He said, the code of Hammurabi includes many harsh punishments sometimes demanding the removal of the guilty party's tongue, hands, breast, eyes, or ear. But the code is also one of the earliest examples of the accused person being considered innocent until proven guilty. Why am I bringing this stuff up? I just say, I'm saying that I think that sometimes our approach to how we judge God, we put him on trial, it's not exactly fair. I would say societal law certainly restrains us from doing the things that we would want to do sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? If you could do anything you wanted without any restraint at all, never getting caught, no repercussions whatsoever, I don't know if I should lead you down this road because <laughs> where does your mind go? You're like, I'm not going to do that because I'll get in trouble. Exactly. Societal law and the judicial system that we have does restrain us. Here's another point. Culture also restrains us. See, our culture, we are raised with 20 generations of please and thank you. That's what Our culture adopts that. But in certain cultures, things are different. You know, in American culture, we might stand in line. And there might be a space between them and the next person. When you go to another country, I've been to those countries where you're standing there and someone just steps in front of you. There's space, so they step in front of you. That's a cultural norm. Or if you do research on like in India, in southern India, for health and wellness, you go to the priest and they crack a coconut on your head. That's their cultural norm. Our cultural norm is that justice should be done, that there should be law and order. Please and thank you. That's a cultural heritage. Here's a third thing that restrains us, and some of us understand this, the Holy Spirit. For those who know the Lord, that, that, know, that he knows you by name, when you give your life away, 
an amazing thing happens. God sends his spirit to dwell within us to convict us of sin, righteousness, and truth and and what is to come. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It doesn't take long for me to be reminded that I am owned by God. If I lie or steal or do something bad, God is there like, boy, straighten up. You know what I'm talking about? His, his spirit convicts me. But that, that conviction restrains me from doing the wickedness that, quite frankly, I would want to do in my flesh. And so I would say we certainly have benefits. Societal and I would call reflective, the, the, reflection, the Holy Spirit reflecting in our life restrains us from the wickedness that we would want to do. See, that, that Holy Spirit, what I'm aware of is that I live underneath a holy God who knows everything all the time. You'll see this in Psalm 139 when it says, Lord, David says this, Lord, you have examined me and know all about me. You know when I sit up and when I get up. You know my thoughts before I even think them. God is clearly aware of what is going on. That restrains me from my own sin. So the question, if you knew there would be no consequences, what would you or I do? There is a benefit to knowing God and him to know you and living in America, quite frankly. You know, and then on top of all of that, some of you guys know this, Jesus radically changed the world. And some of you guys know the, the, the message that he gave when he's standing on the hilltop to the thousands of people, the Beatitudes. He begins to go down and say crazy stuff that we're all impacted. Those who know him are impacted by these truths. Weird stuff. Like pray for those who persecute you. What's your response? I don't wanna. That's your, I don't wanna. Turn, the, you're gonna hit me, I'm gonna hit you harder. Turn the other cheek. I don't wanna. What's it? Give your jacket also when someone takes from you. Give them more. I don't wanna. Right? How about how about the Lord's prayer? What did Jesus say? Forgive as we have been forgiven. What's our what's our flesh say? I don't wanna. See, it's that conviction and working of the Holy Spirit that draws us close to him. Here's the next reason, I think reasonably, why would God give orders to kill a people group? Or certainly there's allowed, there's permitted, but ordained is difficult. I would say I had to get to this reasonably, and that is to set an example to us. Part of that is the discipline to us. What do I mean by God? God disciplines those he loves, That's true, right? There's a discipline that says, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to receive God's discipline. Down in in Indiana, we have a farm down there and we have these white dogs that live on a farm that try to crawl the fences all the time. And they would always get out and run all over the neighborhood. It drove everybody crazy. So we put up this white electric fence that is a, uh, it's got like a rope on it that goes all the way around the size of my pinky. And as soon as the dogs try to crawl up it, it, their nose touches that electric fence. Except for this electric fence is like the super duper electric fence. It's for a hundred mile run, but it's only like a half mile run. So it's extremely powerful. Well, the other day, so I've got this pig too. Um, he's got a date on uh, December 12th, but I've got this pig and my pig, I love my pig, 
But my pig, the problem with the pig is I would give him food on the other side of the fence like this and his blue bowls down there attached to the wooden fence. But every time I come back, he, he sticks his nose under it and he knocks it off the fence. And it drives me nuts because I have to open the gate. Here's the big white cord. I have to go under the cord very carefully. And I said, okay, I got, I'm going to fix this. I went over and got my drill and I got these big long screws. And I said, I'm just going to screw that trough right to the board so he can't knock it off. So I get it. I go under, go over. I get my screws and I lean down to drill this in. But I forgot that the cord was right here. So I touched my forehead to that cord. The next thing, I was waking up. <laughs> Literally. I, I, my legs, my knee still hurts. I don't know which direction it went, but it was not natural. There's the discipline of the electric fence. I don't want that again. I think God so often, he gives examples of what we should live by and pay very close attention to, knowing that the discipline of the Lord is real. You see it as he had, he had that happen in the Old Testament in a larger sense, and also to us personally. But at the same time, you can see parts of God's character. If you study theology and who God is and his character, you'll see things like God is patient. God is patient. You see that in 2 Peter in chapter 3, verse 9. What's going on with that? God is patient. He says, the Lord is, is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should repent. What is that? If it was you or I, yeah, let's, let's switch roles. We're now the judge. We're now God. You do something wrong? Yeah, you're getting whooped for that deal. Pretty low patient tolerant. You know what I'm talking about? But God is like ongoingly patient. If you begin to look at the research, you look at the trend lines of history, God is persuading and prompting and pushing and calling back to himself the people of Israel. He does the same thing to us. He's patient and long-suffering until the point where he finally says, all right, that's enough. You see that when you look at Noah, what happened in Noah's time. He, he, still, he still sustained humanity, even though they were continually wicked all the time. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, he, not only did he bring Lot and Abraham out of that, but at the same time, his purpose of stopping the depth of that wickedness was a sign of his grace. Or in Nineveh, what else do you see? In Nineveh, he sends Jonah over there, says, I'm going to destroy these people. He goes and preaches. They then repent, and he pulls back that discipline to them. So you can see both his patience and the characteristic of his grace. That lives out in our life too. Here's the next thing I saw as I was studying through this. To separate a people group for himself. Now, I had to struggle through this one. So why did God create the Jewish nation? Have you guys ever thought of that? So you go, why, why are there Jews? I remember D.L. Moody saying this. How do I know God exists? Because the Jew exists. I thought that's interesting. Because the reality being, in this, you could see this verse in 2 Samuel 7, 23, among the chaos what do I mean by chaos? Let's just all come up with our own God. Let's come up with our own practices. Let's build our own idols. Let's sacrifice kids and do all these ungodly things. God says, I must make myself known. So he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 23, and who is like your people Israel? 
the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name. So when you think about Yahweh, I've been to Israel, and culturally there's some things that are completely different, but it's beautiful. Because when you go there and the Sabbath happens on Friday night at sundown, everything shuts down and everybody gets together with their family and they have dinner and you pray over your children and you take a day of Sabbath. It's beautiful. But then at certain things, they do weird stuff. Things like you can't eat that, you can't eat that, and the milks and meats are separated. What's going on with all of that? God is separating them as a people group to give himself a name. That's what he's doing so that they would stand out amongst the others. Why is that important? Because it leads me to the next point that I kind of discovered and began to understand as I was preparing this is that not only does God make himself known through this process, but what he does is he paves the road for redemption. And I saw this when I was going through, I remember the first time I read the book of Ruth. And it is a striking book. Anybody who's read Ruth knows the story. What's the story? Starts with Naomi. Something difficult happens. What is it? Husband dies. Man, that's a hard gig going on. Because if your spouse dies, that's not exactly wonderful. It's even worse back then. Why? Because man, the man protected and provided for that home. Women didn't necessarily have a lot of rights. That was a difficult deal. But worse than that, what happens? His two, her two sons die. That's awful. And then as one of his daughter-in-laws, her daughter-in-laws leaves, one is left, Ruth. If I just had one child die, I'd, I'd be a mess. And as you walk through the story, I want to challenge you to reread the book of Ruth and look at it a little differently. How would she feel? How would you feel? What would be the emotions that she would be feeling? As she leaves Moab and travels, and you're like, oh, how far would that be to walk? And what would my feet feel like? And what would be going through my mind? God doesn't love me. Why would he allow this to happen to me? I don't understand God. Are you real? I thought you loved me. Why wouldn't you protect me? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? What would you be thinking? I just remember living that as I was reading it for the first time. And then as you get over, you get through the rest of the story. She returns back to where? Bethlehem. To the people, her people group where she was from. And she gets to Bethlehem and she calls herself Mara. God's hand is against me. Why? Because well, she's, she's actually going behind the people that are harvesting the fields and picking up the leftover pieces of grain. But then something happens. What happens? Boaz shows up with his beautiful dreadlocks or flowing hair and, and, and notices this cute girl named Ruth and says, oh yeah, there's a Ruth right there. And then what happens? They end up getting married. And I remember getting to the end of that story and I remember reading the very end of it. It was so striking. It took me years to figure out genealogy and study it a little bit deeper. But it says that Ruth and Boaz had a child. And the child's name was something. I don't remember. I should have wrote it down. But then it went down to the next. It went down to the next. And they had a son. And they had a son. And then they had a son. And I remember getting to it. And it says, and then they had a son named Obed. And I was like, I know who Obed is. Obed is David's uh, or Jesse's dad. And then it says, and then Obed had a son named Jesse. And I'm like, I know who that is. And then Jesse had a son named David. And at first you're like, okay, I know somebody named David too. Who cares? But, but when you understand biblical context, what was the promise? 
that the Messiah would come through the line of David. And I thought, well, how would that, these are, this is generations later. Naomi lived and died. Ruth lived and died. Many lived and died. And in the context of all of time, we are but a speck on that time spectrum. We are a part of God's story. And on God's story, on the line of history of timeline, you begin to go, wait a minute. What if Naomi knew the story, the full story? In other words, I'm going to allow this to happen by which I bring you from Moab back to Bethlehem by which Ruth meets Boaz by which you have a great, 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 great grandson named David, a great king of Israel by which I think it's 14 generations later, Jesus comes. And they had all been looking for the Messiah. They were taught at a young age. They memorized the Pentateuch. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Messiah would come, but she did not know that she was going to be a part of that story. And I was like, wow, how would that have changed Naomi's mindset? I bet she would have cried a little bit less. I bet the pain would have been a little bit less. I bet her, her position under God would have been more like, God, this really hurts, but my life is not my own. My life is yours. I submit underneath your authority and thank you for letting me be a part of your story. It would change some things. See, what God was doing so often in the process of biblical Old Testament history is that God is paving the road for justice and godliness and law and order and then ultimately what? Redemption through Jesus. That's what was going on. By which now for you and I that hear this type of message, we have two options. Here's the two options. One is the heart of rebellion. And we see this. I was one of those. I, uh, you know, you'll see one that says, I'm really smart. Don't you know that? I got, I got a 32 on my ACT. I'm like, that's cool. It's about like, and I got 50% of that. And then so, and then, yeah, and, but don't you know my degrees? Let me go through my degrees. I'm a, I'm a nuclear physicist. I got, I've got my PhD. I am currently trying to blend atoms to create nuclear fusion. I'm like, that's cool. But what you're missing is the one who created the atom. And you're forgetting that God is the one that has the PhD in every subject. Your position is out of line, man. You just got a little bitty brain. And so we have this spirit that wants to say, uh, I don't want to, and I'm the smartest, and this pride-filled heart that blinds us from God's righteousness and truth. That's one position. Another position is simply the rest, to rest. And when we go back to the Lord's Prayer, what is it? It is our Father who is in heaven. Holy is your name. What is that? You are holy. I certainly am not. How many of you guys would agree with that one? I am not. That all of my thoughts and sins will be laid bare before him. When I stand before him, I have no position other than I am unrighteous and ungodly. Holy, you are holy, Father. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life, around my life, through my life, on earth, as it clearly is in heaven. And that's where I begin to understand the criticalness for me and for you, for those who have, that, that God knows your name, how special that is. 
That's awesome. But some of you are not a part of God's kingdom. You do, you don't, he doesn't know you. You don't know him fully. And you can't come to know him until you positionally submit yourself under his authority and give your life away. And that's what salvation is. Salvation is where you say, I no longer own my life. I give my life to you and take on your righteousness. The payment for all of my wrong is done through you, through your son, Jesus. And then you take on his righteousness, not your own. So in closing, I would say that regardless of where you're at, we're called to one of those two things. A reminder. What's the reminder? I am not God. He is. I don't always understand, nor do I need to fully understand. My mind can't. I can get a glimpse into God's mind. That's positionally for us who are known by him. And those who do not know him, I would say we also, remember the Holy Spirit I was talking about? Conviction of righteousness and truth, prompting and pulling you to him. I would just encourage you to submit to that and say, you know what? I'm gonna give my life away. And we'll give you that opportunity just after we have communion.